Welcome to Shortcut to Sunday. I'm Ben. And I'm Bruce. And this is your podcast for September 15th, 2019. We're into proper 19, and we are coming to you not live from Holy Family Episcopal Church in Fishers, Indiana. And uh, and uh, so we are we are uh, uh, still in the season after Pentecost and moving along. But uh, uh, I'm looking forward to um, our, our Stump the Priest uh, uh, word here today, just because I'd never heard this word in my life. Sweet. Uh, so uh, I'll be I'll be pleasantly surprised if you have and know what it is. Uh, but it, it doesn't give a pronunciation, so I'm going to apologize okay. if I say it wrong. And that apparently there's two different words to say it, but there's <laughs> Baldacino or Baldaquin. Wow. Well, and I just I, I loved it because it sounds like it's a coffee drink for a guy without hair. The Baldacino. <laughs> Well, yeah, if, if your barista refuses to wear a hairnet, mm-hmm. you want that. <laughs> right, you want a baldacino. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and baldaquin sounds like a bald mannequin. So <laughs> I, 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 I was intrigued by the word. Baldaquin. Boy, I am stumped. Awesome. I More love, deeply than ever. I love stumping you. I mean, last time I, I was stumped, but I said, I think that's what it is, but... You just I am clueless. So this says it is a canopy used to cover an altar. It may be made of wood, stone, metal, or fabric. The term is also applied to the canopy over a bishop's throne, uh-huh. a canopy over statue, uh, yeah, statues, yeah. and a, the canopy carried in processions such as processions of the Blessed Sacrament. Now I know what it is. Yeah. The Baldacino. Well, and there's actually a... Um, practical dimension to it that, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know if it has a different title when it's over a pulpit, but that is pre-electronics, a sound system. Oh. Where by having a cover over the altar or the pulpit or the bishop's chair, the person speaking from that location's voice bounces in, in the proper direction towards the congregation. Gotcha. So it kind of funnels the sound waves out towards the audience. Very much so. And they would, um, again, pre-electronics, engineer these fairly precisely so that I saw one demonstrated in a Victorian church where if you stood underneath it, you could talk in a normal voice and be heard at the back of the church that probably sat 300 people, a fairly large space. If you took a step so you were no longer underneath it. You couldn't hear a thing. Huh. That it How re- about that? really did function. It was amazing to see. Very good. So um, what's nice is uh, here at Holy Family, we actually don't need a Baldacino. Uh, we got the electronics. Uh, we have the electronics, but also the uh, the room is actually designed to yeah. get to, to carry uh, sound. Uh, it does a great job of that. Uh, yeah. for, for the parishioners out there who, if you're ever curious, you can go into the sanctuary and look at the side walls and you will notice that they are curved ever so slightly to push sound up and out. So yeah. it's, it's kind of a kind of an interesting design feature uh, that you don't really see very many places, but it's kind of kind of a fun little side project. So you have to come visit us and and uh, and uh, see the sanctuary yeah, for through. yourself. But that's uh, yeah, that's but, our modern Baldacino. So if I if I see someone I don't know walking through the sanctuary <laughs> clapping, because I've watched sound engineers do this <laughs> in other churches I've served, I'll know why you're doing yeah, it. You're yeah, you're te- testing the acoustics. Yeah, or you're just happy. Or yeah. you're just happy. Yeah, which is also nice. It's also good. So, uh, so, anyways, uh, thank you, uh, uh, EpiscopalDictionary.com. Yeah. Uh, that was that was that was a lot of fun. 
Uh, so the readings for September 15th uh, in year C, proper 19, uh, we're going to go this time with Exodus. Let's start with Exodus 32, verse 7 through 14. And that says, The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn uh, hot against them and I may consume them. And of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and, J and your... So used to saying it. Abraham, mm -hmm. Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. Um, like I said, so used to saying Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah. Uh, threw me off. Um but yeah, this is a so this is the precursor to him coming down the mountain and throwing the tablets. At, right, that'll be what happens calf. next. Uh, and a little known fact uh, has, or I shouldn't say little known, but we kind of we kind of skip over it and don't read it in many of the lectionary readings. He melts down the calf and puts it in their drinking water. <laughs> yes, that's as funny you you remember that I. Always remember that. It's it's like the oddest thing. Because that's gold poisoning. <laughs> well, but actually, okay, I only know this because of a weird culinary trend, of, I, I want to say 10 years ago, when people had so much money in, cer in a certain country that they dusted their food with gold. Sure. And so I read that if it really is pure gold, your body just processes it. I mean, it doesn't gain anything from it, mm -hmm. but it also is not a poison. That's one of the reasons gold is, is used for various um, things like fillings, dental fillings and all gotcha. that. Gotcha. So he would not poison them. He may have given them a little constipation, but... <laughs> <laughs> Whoa is us! <laughs> Think about this there the next week. Yeah. You just remember. But, uh, but yeah, I always thought that was kind of yeah. interesting. Lead would have been worse. Lead, yeah, a lead calf would have yeah. been... Far worse, yes, for sure. But uh, but yeah, I was I, the, that all as, uh, as an aside. But I've always I always remember that, and it stands <laughs> out mostly in my mind because uh, we never read that section. Like any reading, always stops before that happens. Like the the full punishment, we always talk about the wrath, and he breaks the tablets, and he <laughs> shames them, and like you know wags his finger, yeah. and then the reading stops. Well, and the other thing that's um about that action, about grinding it up and having them drink it, is it it is about the most thorough way that he could completely devalue the gold. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because it was not no one was going to be willing to recover 
that gold. Right. That's that's a good point. So it wasn't like they could say, okay, we'll take the gold back. Right. This is why you can't have nice things. And yes. So like he <laughs> disassembles it and so that the, all the gold that they brought out of Egypt uh, was probably in that calf or the vast majority yeah. of it and it was gone forever. Right. Interesting. Until someone starts panning for gold in the Sinai. What? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I want to talk about here is uh, uh, this. In, in this reading, the, the the Old Testament has a number of different stories where the uh, protagonist is speaking to God and like convinces God mm-hmm. to do something, which is kind of when you think about it, a weird, a weird thing to put in the story for the Almighty God, knower of all things, you know, the, the Alpha, the Omega, the, 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 this, this character, this creator of, of ultimate power being convinced by a mere mortal. Yeah. And I was hoping that you might say a few words as to, like, why is that, why is that a trend, number one? And, but, but also, you know, why is that in the story? You know, who is Moses to convince his creator to do things differently, and why is that uh, part of the uh, the storytelling of the Old Testament? Yeah, it's one of the most fascinating parts. Uh, one of the features of the Old Testament of the Hebrew Scriptures is the ability for humans to argue with God, mm-hmm. and it's one that, particularly as Christians, we tend to lose. We tend to set that aside because we only saw people arguing with Jesus who lost the argument. Okay, except. For the woman who argued with Jesus, um, who was the Samaritan woman, mm-hmm. and Jesus said, basically, you're not worthy because you're not of Israel. And she said, even the dogs get the crumbs from the table. Mm-hmm. And Jesus, you're right. So that's the, um, in a sense, the ultimate God-human argument, mm-hmm. the, the, the last one that, I think it's the last one, that appears in the scripture. So throughout there's a conversational aspect with God that when we when we mentally put God on a distant throne makes no sense to us. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the reasons why the scriptures have these repeated conversational type encounters is to make God intimate with us, mm-hmm. to drive home that we really are called to have an intimate conversational relationship with God. Um, and part of it also is to break the theology that God is sitting back, having set everything up, and just watching how things are going to play out. Mm-hmm. That God has not predestined what's going to happen, but instead... The human free will is usually what's going to determine the fate of the various people who are touched by it. Mm. So, you know, in movies and and literature and other forms of media and folktales going back prehistory, there's often a dimension of, oh, this is someone's destiny. This is someone's fate. Mm -hmm. And that's a fiction. There's no such thing in real life. And it's instead humans muddling through and sometimes messing up each other's lives and God trying to intervene and tell people better ideas. But unless we listen, nothing happens to make things better. And so this is that um, kicking us in the head and saying, wake up, 
Mm-hmm. Um, God's not distant. Have a conversation with God about what you think's going on, but conversation is two-sided. Sure. So you also have to listen. Yeah. And each time what's revealed is God's ultimate persona is one of mercy. Because God always relents from the, okay, I'm going to wipe him out, but Moses or whoever he's talking to, I'll keep you, but we need a clean slate again. Mm -hmm. And the argument almost always is, whether it's with Moses or Abraham or another character, wait a minute, wait a minute, aren't you the God who is merciful or whatever it is? Mm -hmm. And in a sense, the human talks God back to God's essence of mercy. And the terms usually are extremely generous. The terms of forgiveness and reconciliation are extremely generous. And so it's almost like a just so story where we don't think we have to argue with God on a daily basis for God to be merciful. But it's one of those ways in which again and again we get to learn that God's essential nature is that of mercy. I also kind of wonder if uh, 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 myself, whether or not uh, this is also maybe a little bit of a test uh, for for the individual. Uh, God saying, uh, you know, you know, oh, these people are stiff necked. Just just let me let my wrath burn against them. I just, you know, kind of like peeking over the, his shoulder like, <laughs> to see if Moses says anything. You know, I'll, I'll just kind of smite him. What do you what do you think about that? What do you, what do you, Pop yeah. quiz. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, but, it, but I kind of wonder if that's that's also uh, – uh, it's it's not written as though that's the case. Yeah. But it does make me wonder, like, if, if God is kind of like, you know, he knows he's the God of mercy. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. it makes me wonder if it's kind of like, do you how, – how, how do you – how would you react to this situation? Would you, yeah. you know, would you be merciful or would you be uh, vengeful and wrathful? Well, and the other dimension is that people at, at – the time of, in this case, Moses, and I think even today, too often picture the one true God as a stereotypical Roman God or Greek God who wants to toss thunderbolts down at people. Mm-hmm. And so it, it starts with a human preconception of, well, if I were God, yeah, I would wipe out those folks. Right. And walks it back mm-hmm. to who okay. God really is. Yep. So it, it almost makes us get into that mind space of, well, of course, I, I'd want to be wrathful. And then, oh, I don't get to be. That instead, the lesson of mercy is built up more and more hmm. as the argument goes on. And the arguments are always structured in a very stylistic way so that the ancient reader would have known that something sort of play acting was going on here. Gotcha. It wasn't clearly um, a divine conversation out of the blue. It's like, okay, you know, all the markers are here that this is a, a lesson that's going to happen right. rather than this is how God really is. Right, right. Uh, and uh, kudos to, to Moses uh, for having uh, the a very interesting angle. I mean, he's, yeah. not, he's not really saying like, oh, come on, just give him one more chance. Like he really uh, pulls something out of the hat that is, you know, a, a very thoughtful uh, uh, argument of, look, if you – you could do that if you want, but if you do that, then the story, the, the story of your mercy does not spread. It, right. You know, you then are telling a different story here and, you know, deliver, 
you know, delivering all of these people from the Egyptians through some miraculous processes and only to murder them in the mountains. Yeah. <laughs> uh, doesn't really, doesn't really, uh, that, that's not your brand. You know what I mean? Like we need a, Moses is like a branding uh, coach here. Yeah. And like, you know what would really work here though is, is continuing that, that, that message of mercy and deliverance. And yeah. And, and in, in that way it could be, it is one of the pieces that can be a lesson for any human. Yeah. Very good. Uh, I'm sure that we could go on, on but let's, on. Uh, instead let's go on to first Timothy verse or chapter one, verses 12 through 17. This is the first book of Timothy. Yes. Uh, I am grateful to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence, but I received my mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for, for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But for that very reason I received mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience, making me an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, Tell us a little bit about the 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 first and second Timothy writings, uh, uh, origin mm -hmm. about about when they were done, and they're they're among the youngest books in the Bible. They're written almost certainly in the um, after one hundred A.D. Okay, or B.C.E. Um, Common Era, not B.C.E. C.E. So they were not written by Paul, even though at the beginning it says I Paul. I mean, beginning of the book. Right. But they were written in honor of Paul's teaching. And so at the time when they were written, it was very acceptable within Roman literature to use an author you highly respected as the author. Okay. And in a sense, try to ghostwrite what you think that person would want to say. So mm -hmm. even though Paul had probably been dead at, 50, 60 years at this point, his name is put on this. And because it was so long after Paul's death, everyone who got it was said, yeah, that's what this is. One of these honor letters that honors who Paul was and is trying to carry on Paul's mission and teaching. Very interesting. And who is Timothy? Uh, we, that, as far as we know, do we, we know don't much? Know. Okay. Uh, it, First letter to the, some dude named Timothy. Yeah, we think it was probably to... One of the guesses is that it was the church in Ephesus by the context of some of the problems raised. Okay. But um, in terms of the actual individuals, don't know. Um, but one of the interesting things is that First Timothy and Second Timothy uh, talk about very almost modern concerns like the making of bishops and things like that. Mm. Jesus had no interest in whatsoever, and Paul barely touched on church leadership. Right. But, um the Timothy letters really talk about how do you um, set up a structure that's going to last because at that by that point, it was clear the second coming was not happening immediately mm -hmm. and therefore a structure had to be set up in order to um, faithfully carry on the mission of Christ. 
Very interesting. So, so yeah, so in rereading some of this, uh, uh, that's an interesting literary dynamic of, yeah. of you know, authorship being uh, um, laid on someone else, uh, like in the style and, and, and the, 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 the teachings of, because um, that makes sense. If, if it really was from Paul, you know, he... Uh, he writes in his own uh, writings about you know his trip to what he became and mm -hmm. where he, he came his from. Journey, yeah, his journey from from uh, from sin and persecution of the early Christians, right? And, yeah. Um, so this is this is uh, as far as the book. This is like the the, the very beginning part of the book. So it's right. kind of setting up the structure of this is where. I come to you writing this letter, and this is where I come to you from. Right. The, this is my, you know, the, my position of, of humility and uh, um, uh, exaltation upon, of, of, of Christ Jesus. Dependent upon God's mercy. Mm -hmm. Not doing this through my own abilities, but rather because Christ was merciful to me. Right. Um, anything else about this passage? Because as I read it, it really does kind of, that that really is the, the, the whole thrust of the reading is that this is the setup for where the author is coming from. Right. He's building on the theology of Paul's own spiritual journey, just to be clear. It's not mm -hmm. the author's journey. It is supposed to be the Apostle Paul um, in order to give credibility to the rest of the letter and also to explain the foundation of the theology and um, practical advice that the letter is going to transmit. Very good. Yeah. All right. Well, then over to Luke. Over to Luke. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the, lost, the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels over God, over one sinner who repents. Um, this parable is uh, a probably the... the easiest example of something that you talked about mm -hmm. was it last week two weeks My, ago i think it was two weeks ago um about a, a male and female counterpart story right. uh in this case jesus says tells them back to back yeah um and uh it's uh so, so um this is a continuation of criticism that he's getting from the pharisees working on the sabbath spending time with sinners Mm -hmm. uh, dining with uh, uh, people who are of le are of less notoriety, you know this is this is like the continual uh, thread through uh, apparently uh, the, the continual thread through the book of Luke, which is like you know I'm breaking up your social expectations. I'm spending time mm -hmm. with people who 
and, and, and really, one would read it probably as, a, as kind of a chastisement to the, um, the, the church leadership at the time. You've no. lost your way. You've forgotten the people who you're supposed to care for. You're supposed to care for these people. Yeah, and, and in Luke especially, there's the very strong sense, and as is true in the Gospel of John, that when Jesus is eating a meal, it often is at least a hint of the Last Supper, and therefore our, our current Holy Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And that it's it's crucial to think of the Eucharist as a place where the tax collectors and sinners are especially welcomed, and uh, the folks that are the outcasts are the ones that Jesus wants at the head of the table. Right. Um, and, and these two parables, I know sometimes we have uh, difficulty of our, of our own making, uh, um, um, really letting this these parables resonate the way I think that they should because we also you know parable of the you know the the uh, the the lost son coming home you know there's a part of us in there that are like yeah but you know you do make all this big fuss over you know one you know one per- what about what about me who you know I, I did everything right why why don't I get praise and Thanksgiving mm-hmm. And uh, it, it is, it is, and maybe that's the reason why uh, similar parables are shared uh, regularly, um, because that is a difficult thing for us to to kind of fully wrestle with and, and be comfortable with. Um, one of the things that comes to my mind, though, is is um, it, especially in these two situations, the parables uh, that, that that are used uh, to be the lost coin or to be the lost sheep. There are potential serious repercussions right uh, uh, using the sheep metaphor of you know if you're lost and you're a sheep you're you're a meal for something you're a meal for, for a number of things yeah uh, or you know in danger of leading astray you know falling off a cliff yeah uh, accidentally drowning uh, you know there there's some serious danger whereas yeah. if you're part of the flock that there there's a strong sense of comfort comfort zone yeah. but it's the same with the, the the coins if you know the the one coin might not always be found yeah uh, any of us have well, archaeological sites show us that not very many yeah exactly not very many of us are sheep uh, uh or 10 sheep for a living so maybe that parable is a little bit more lost on us but We've all lost money. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and the couch cushions under floorboards, I found some uh, just uh, j- just uh, earlier this week. You know, yeah. and, and it's just those things get lost, and there's a chance that they are never found. Right. Um, and, and so it does, you know, kind of create – there are real stakes, which is why you rejoice because, oh, my gosh, I could have gone completely differently for mm-hmm. for that one. Um but uh, but it is it, it it is still a tough thing for us to because we want we want to be rewarded for and acknowledged for our good work and our good yeah. deeds, and while the parables don't quite sew that up nicely for the righteous ninety nine, yeah, you know what I mean. It, uh, uh, the the implication is like you're right where you're supposed to be. You're receiving the gift that you should have gotten uh, that you've earned the whole time. Because you're where you belong. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and to, to reinforce part of what you started with, verse 11, where we had stopped, is the parable of the prodigal son. Okay. So, okay. so you're, it, you're completely right to feel that echo there, because these are very much designed, the parables we have today, to lead us to that story. Okay. Um, 
And I was just, and we don't get it next week. I mean, the week following this week. Oh, so oh, we already no. had it earlier in the summer. Prodigal uh, Son's a popular one. Yeah, I mean, but to reinforce what you were saying about how we don't want it, um, don't want to embrace that. Years ago, I was told a story about a parish I was serving that had this beautiful stained glass window of the Prodigal Son, mm-hmm. and the um, Thanksgiving message on it was given in Thanksgiving for the parish by numerous parishioners. Mm. All the other windows had a memorial to some individual. Okay. And a longtime member pulled me aside and said, do you know why that one says that? I thought, well, I said, well, I've always thought that that was the window that people who couldn't afford to give a full window chipped in on. And therefore they got to participate in this fundraising drive. And they said, no, 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 no. What it was, was that, yes, all the other 12 windows or whatever it was, were very quickly donated by people who wanted to remember a son lost in World War II or something like that. But no one wanted their family member associated with a prodigal son. Hmm. That no one wanted anyone to even think for a moment that the person being remembered there would have needed that kind of grace and mercy. And so Uh, no one would subscribe to it until it was made anonymous like that. Interesting. Yeah. And so... No one knows knows who gave the most money for it or anything like that. It was just uh, a blind gift, so to speak, in terms of the parish. Hmm. Uh, so I've always thought of that, of how much we resist the idea of being found by God instead of, like you were saying, earning it right. ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, to get, like, th- that's interesting. Yeah, both both sides of that coin, not to turn the phrase for, <laughs> for the, the reading. There's a level of discomfort. Uh, yeah. yeah, we don't want to be the one who needs grace and forgiveness, but we also don't want to be the ones who didn't need it in the first place and get no attention. Yeah, so, <laughs> right. So, uh, so uh, 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 we're just not happy either way. <laughs> we're humans. <laughs> um, That's why we need people like Moses arguing for us. <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. Um, so, so that kind of does uh, beg the question. Since we won't continue on this reading next week um i guess the question is uh how does how does that passage uh sew up uh, like i next week we jump over to chapter 16 right uh, so, uh, so after the prodigal son is there like some sort of uh, uh, uh statement where it ties up these stories together and kind of sums actually, it up actually it kind of yes um the, the my bible entitles it the parable of the dishonest manager the and it is a, a fictional story in, where the person who the um, boss forgives a debt. Oh, that is next week. Yeah, refuses to forgive the debts of others. Okay. And so it is very much addressing the um, everyday Christian who may very much appreciate the mercy that God gives, but is not willing to express it towards others. Huh. So, so it does. It, it 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 he continues to kind of weave these yeah. parables together to attack the same argument from yeah. different angles. This section of Luke is all about discipleship and and what is our place in God's love and in loving others. Hmm. How we're supposed to be passing that along and and living out lives of mercy as we are dependent upon God's mercy. Interesting. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Um, now you said the the. Uh, thing I'd like to end on then you, you had indicated that there might be a uh, a very uh, crooked no, I shouldn't say crooked tie there's not a straight tie to uh, uh, one of the other gospels but there, there's there's a a, a a 
little bit of a weaker tie from this reading in Luke to which did Matthew. you say Matthew? Yeah, the Matthew one has a similar section about the sheep, but doesn't have anything about the lost coin. Okay, and so that's one of those ways that we know it's it's remarkable that Luke um, remembers this other story that Jesus told that is again this male and female pairing. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a a hero for each segment of the population. Right. Males and females can relate to um, the main character in one of these parables. So in Matthew, it also does talk about uh, uh, going after a lost sheep. Yeah. But it skips over the the, the, the shorter story about the, the, the and coin. It, and it's quite a bit compressed. It doesn't have... It has the 99. It has um, rejoicing, but um, with a lot less detail. And it's... I was going to say it's almost a throwaway. That's certainly not appropriate to say about any right. part of the scripture. But, but it's it's not nearly as fleshed out as Luke does. Well, and it does it does that kind of does strike the tone between the different authors. Yeah. Luke has a very specific point he's making, which is why he spends several chapters on right. you know uh, these these parables and discipleship and everything. Whereas Matthew is 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 has has a different angle uh, essentially that he's he, a point that he's driving towards and certainly luke ha- seems to have a, a stronger ear for stories that jesus told mm-hmm. and so has is more likely to have the longer versions yeah. than matthew is or he mark more luke has more parables than the other right. gospels right yeah yeah only in luke does uh the parable of the good samaritan or the parable of the prodigal son occur for mm-hmm. instance even though they're Certainly favorites within Christianity right. and, and key teachings, hmm. but they're only in Luke. See, and that's, that's a, like I said, that's the kind of the interesting dynamic of the, that's, you know, the four gospels are all different gospels that we, uh, takes all four. It takes all four because yeah, it, yeah, it does. It, they, they come from different angles, different points of views, different parts of the story that they want to focus on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, it does make me wonder, uh, where, like, do we know, like when, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about were written. Like, is it like we have some pretty good guesses? Like, yeah. is, is Luke because it would make me guess that Luke would be a little bit later because this focus on discipleship is kind of driving. These are these are these are uh, uh, things that that you would want in your fledgling church as you kind of spread this word out of like, look, this is how you know to internalize these stories yeah. in, in individually. Is that does that play out in, in what we know or what we think we know about that, when they're written. That does cause some folks to think that Luke was after Matthew, mm-hmm. but there's a very good chance that there's an equally good chance that they were written almost simultaneously. Okay. Um, that, that Mark is clearly the one that is the oldest of the four gospels. Okay. And the other three seem to have at least some familiarity with it. Matthew and Luke have a very strong familiarity with Mark. Um, and, Matthew and Luke also have a common um, source is the term that's often been used by scholars Mm -hmm. um, that they each have drawn from. And then John has a strong familiarity with Mark, but doesn't seem to be aware of very much at all of Matthew and Luke. Hmm. So there's a, a sort of a sense that Mark was in circulation by the time John was written down. Okay. And so shaped what was how John was written, the order of things appeared sometimes. But it's, one of the neat things is that with archaeology ongoing and ancient scrolls continuing, 
continuing to be discovered, the field is changing all the time. There's just another discovery about the Dead Sea Scrolls, for instance, hmm. um, within this year that is going to alter a little bit of our understanding about how scripture circulated in the Holy Land um, in the time of the Romans. Hmm. That it, this new discovery implies that um, there that scriptures were written down in a variety of locations, whereas some people were trying to, or maybe we're just automatically picturing the Dead Sea Scrolls as being primarily produced in the desert uh, outside Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. But this new discovery shows no, the this this most one of the most important scrolls was not. The, the actual parchment was not probably produced in that region. Hmm. And so it probably was produced elsewhere and was part of the, the library of the community of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So it was an import. Cool. Yeah. I That's love that cool. stuff. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Well, very good. Uh, I think that will uh, that will sew it up nicely for today. As, a, as the, the, the showing Showing you how the word continues to change. Uh, uh, throughout the ages. Insights continue to be enriched. Yep. Very good. Well, uh, with that being said, uh, this was your podcast for September 15th, 2019. Uh, uh, Come feel free to join us at uh, 8 and 10 o'clock next week and uh, uh, hear what Bruce has to say. Uh, Maybe the Dead Sea Scrolls come up in the homily. Maybe they don't. We'll see what what happens. See how the spirit leads Uh, us. Maybe maybe we'll finally focus on... uh, uh, the drinking of the golden, the melted <laughs> golden calf. We're not sure, uh, but uh, I bet the have, youth group will. Hey, yeah, right. <laughs> you'll have to. Uh, you'll have to. You'll have to join us eight to ten, and uh, we'll find out. Find out uh, what he has to say on that. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, I'm Ben and I'm Bruce, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye bye. Bye.